remembering the kindness of other sentient beings, how everything we know, everything we have, everything we're able to do, our whole life is due to their kindness and their efforts. And without sentient beings, not only could we not remain alive, but there's no way of practicing the Dharma or becoming enlightened. So the deep sense of connection to all other living beings and the sincere wish to be a great benefit to them. And let's aspire for full enlightenment. Some of you may have had this experience of uh, having said a verse repeatedly thousands and thousands of times and then something happens and you recite it and some new meaning comes into the verse. So when we were reciting, reciting our refuge in Bodhicitta prayers, uh, somehow the phrase uh, I take refuge until I am enlightened in the Buddha Dharma and It just really jumped out at me. And I thought, oh, I'm taking refuge until I'm enlightened. It's not just, you know, this Dharma session. It's not just this life. It's like I'm signing up for all of eternity, you know? And I was thinking how... Um, First of all, to get yourself to the point where you want to sign up for, you know, endless time. Um, you know, you have to, to know something about the Buddha Dharma Sangha, know something about the path and, and all of this stuff, and really feel in your heart like, yeah, this explains reality, or my false reality, and it explains actual reality. So you have to have some, some confidence in that. And then once you have that confidence, or put it this way, the, the more you have that confidence, then the more you want to plant seeds on your present mind stream that will enable you in future lives to have that same view and, ha- and meet the Buddha Dharma Sangha and your spiritual teachers in future lives. Okay. So when we're at the beginning, and you know, we just kind of were checking things out. We say the words, but actually, we're not signing up for you know so long. It's maybe for the meditation session. But but after a while, you know, when you when the, as things your understanding gradually increases, then you really say, you know, this is really true. And this is really what's meaningful, and this is really what's important. And I don't care how long it takes. This is where I'm going. You know, I don't care what eon, 50 million eons. It doesn't matter. This, this is the direction I'm going. And, and then you want to, you, because you have some faith in uh, karma and its effects, and cause and effect, then you see that there's incredible importance to really imprinting on your mind stream 
what you want to do with all of your future lives. You know? Because when you think we have beginningless previous lives where, you know, who knows what in the world we've imprinted on our mind stream. You know? I don't know about you, but I look even in this life before I met the Dharma. It was one variety of the ten destructive actions after another variety, and that was about it. So if I think, well, what have I done imprinted on my mind stream from the endless time? It's like, well, more of the above. So now when there's this little space of time that we have, you know, with a precious human life and the opportunity to practice, it's like, okay, I better really focus here and plant some strong seeds on my mind stream and plant them repeatedly, you know, so that they're going to bear some effect because they also have this whole history of all the, the seeds of the weeds that I planted on my mind stream. And at the time of death, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a competition there. So, you know, that I just, you know, like it's really serious. And, you know, you really got to, because you don't know how long this opportunity lasts. And, you know, it could end tonight. And by tonight, you know, we're in our next life. And this life, basta finito, all the chance to practice in this life, gone, 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 you know, and, um, you know, and that's it. And she's like, wow, it's just really important to do this now. Why there's the chance to plant those seeds? And I think monastic ordination is one way to plant those seeds in a very, very strong way. Because we just had what I thought was a fascinating discussion about career. I don't know about you. I thought it was an excellent discussion, really interesting. And and then you think, okay, this whole thing about career, and you're putting that aside to ordain. Yeah. And what what are you put? What seeds are you putting in your mind stream when you're doing that? And what seems to be not living in your mind stream when you're doing that. And, and for me, I know, I know the, the experience of ordination, both my novice ordination and full ordination, it was a very, very, the strong experience of really um, very deep refuge and very deep connection with the three jewels. And it's interesting because I wasn't so familiar with the ordination ceremony uh, then as I am now. And what's interesting, especially at your novice ordination, you receive the vows through taking refuge. That's what you are repeating after your preceptor to receive the vows is the refuge. And, you know, and so it just really strikes you, okay. It's the monastic vows and the refuge. They're like, you know, that's what really connects you to the three jewels because you're really deciding when you become a monastic that you want to follow in the Buddha's footsteps. And really, you know, the Buddha was a monastic. So, and he must have seen some value in this lifestyle. You know, he, he, he didn't decide to continue being a prince and practice that way. And he didn't decide to be a businessman and, you know, or any of those other things he could have done. But he decided, you know, to become a monastic. And, okay, so there's some meaning in this. And, that's, and I want to follow in this Buddhist footsteps. 
because he's, you know, the Buddha's my role model. You know, when when we're talking about careers, what do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, what do you want to be when you grow up? A Buddha. Yeah? Of course, the rest of society goes, oh, crazy kid. But, you know, if you think about it, that's the greatest thing you you could think of doing. And that's why, you know, we're always generating the bodhicitta again and again and again, aspiring for Buddhahood. And the monastic ordination is just this tremendous foundation for being able to do the rest of the practice. And, you know, sometimes I, I, people will ask me kind of, what have you done that's valuable in your life or how do you feel about your life? And the one thing that I, that I continually say is the most important thing I did in my life was take ordination. You know, because everything else, any anything else that that managed to get done in terms of dharma practice or whatever benefits to sentient beings, has been done upon the basis of the monastic ordination. You know, and that's real, real clear in my mind, because when I think how I was living before I got ordained, I could never, you know done anything even you know big small anything um, with the kind of lifestyle and the kind of mind I had then you know and so sometimes people say oh well it's only weak people who are gay and I said you know you're absolutely right you know because I cannot I could not practice uh, living a lay life I mean my life was just too chaotic and too much going on and I had such incredible attachment and just amazing attachment so easily just you know what people expected of me what they wanted of me and uh, you know there's no way I could have could have really adequately steered my life in a Dharma way and kept my career and my marriage and my social life and my hobbies and everything else going you know it was impossible so maybe there's some people who are really strong and they can do it as lay people, and that's fantastic. But I tell you, I couldn't. Okay, and so you know, to really help me focus, that's that's why I I took the precepts, and that's why I say that anything that a usefulness like that has been done has been done on that basis. Yeah. And and for that reason, I just feel incredibly grateful. Um, to the Buddha Dharma Sangha and also to, to my preceptor and Chantri Lingren betrayed his uh, holiness's senior too that was my, my uh, preceptor for my novice ordination and, uh, uh, and now he, he passed away in um, passed away in 82 no 83 I think so now I know him in his next life it's very interesting knowing people over two lifetimes you know um, so he's very old and now I know him when he's very young and um, and uh, I see him almost every year because I try to go to India every year so whenever I go I go to visit him and I always go and thank him for ordaining me mm-hmm. you know and um, uh, because I just think it's just incredibly uh, tremendous kindness, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also for my full ordination, just 
an incredible gratitude to the Chinese tradition for for enabling me to do that because I could, you know they don't have the full recognition for women in the Tibetan tradition so just to have that opportunity to do it and the, the kindness of the Chinese who just kind of welcomed us into their tradition and you know gave us ordination and encouraged us and I've gotten tremendous encouragement from the the uh, Chinese monastics just tremendous and uh, Venerable William when I saw her in um, in Germany this last time Venerable Clinton Katya I went to visit her and so we were uh, talking with her and she said that she thinks that the Tibetan monks don't appreciate the Western Vichinese mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. and she said that if she if she were able to she would give each of us the temple to run and just say go to it <laughs> yeah and uh, you know just in- incredible encouragement to to do what we're doing yeah so, so very very grateful to them okay so somehow I don't know that just came out of my mouth right now um, but you know that phrase just until I am enlightened it's like you know this is, you know, I really want to go this direction in future lives, and I realize it's important to, to, to make that plan now. It's like, you know, we, we make so many plans for our old age. You know, we have a pension plan, and a 401k, and an IRA, and a SEP, and a this, and a that. And we don't even know if we're going to live that long. You know? I mean, maybe, maybe not. And anyway, no matter how much money you save to wait, it's never enough. It's never enough. You never get to the point where you have enough money. Forget it. You know? But if you think, okay, then you need to save for future lives, you know? You need to yeah, create some merit, make some preparation for future lives, you know, because you know, I mean to tell you the truth, I don't want to be reborn as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, you know or a nothing. I want to be reborn in, in, in a place and at a time where I can meet my same teachers again, you know, and not waste so much time watching TV and doing a bunch of dumb things, you know, but somehow meet my teachers and be able to start practicing early next life. You know, at least stay out of the hell rooms, you know, you know, bottom line. <laughs> but hopefully be able to do something useful through the Dharma. And so saying, you know, just as you prepare for your old age, just as you prepare for death, you know, just as we're doing all this preparation for our, our October 13th celebration, well, we've got to prepare for our next life. And we've got to prepare for the rest of our Dharma practice. Yeah, assuming we don't get it done this lifetime, I don't. They say aim for full enlightenment in this lifetime, but don't expect it. So, you know, so okay, then I have to make some preparation to be able to continue in the future. Okay, so that's why I I always pray to to be ordained in our future lives. Yeah, I think, and you know, there's that this verse right in here in the King of Prayers. You know, did you notice that verse in the King of Prayers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm
anybody finding that before? Anyway, you know what verse I'm talking about? We're just talking about... Uh, oh, here it is. Remembering my past lives and all varieties of existence, may I practice the Bodhisattva way. And thus, in each cycle of death, migration, and birth, may I always abandon the householder's life. So there it is. Yeah. And you see here, abandoning the householder's life is connected with practicing the Bodhisattva's way. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, you abandon the householder's life and you're just working for your own enlightenment. You know, it's, you know, may I practice the Bodhisattva way? And in order to do that most efficaciously, may I always abandon the householder's life? Because when you abandon the householder's life, it gives you so much space in your mind to develop love and compassion for all beings. And that's one of the things in the householder's life, you have love and compassion for the people you're attached to. Huh? And that's about it. And, and they and the people you're attached to also expect your love and compassion. And they want you to tell them repeatedly how much you love them and how much you're committed to them and how much you're attached to them and how much you're there for them. And, uh, you know, so the mind in householder's life, you know, it's, it's, you have some love and compassion, but it's, it's for a very small group of people, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's for your partner, your kids, your parents, your siblings, nieces and nephews. Of course, some of those people are the same people you don't speak to anymore either. Yeah. True or not true. True. Okay. So, so then, how many people do you have love and compassion for? It really isn't so many. Then maybe some friends. But, you know, friends come, friends go. You have attachment for them and love them one time and not later on. And, you know, all of our high school boyfriends and girlfriends who we loved you know, so much, where are they now, and who knows, yeah, so in a householder's life, there's love and compassion, but it's really focused on such a, you know, few number of people, yeah, and then there's all sorts of commitments together with it, you know, and obligations and expectations, and there's so little freedom, because yeah. your mother and father expect X, Y, and Z out of you, you know? And then you no sooner grow up than you get in a relationship. And then your lover, spouse, partner expects, you know, A, B, C out of you, which may agree. There may be, maybe it's A, B, X, so at least the X shares in common with your parents and your partner. But then sometimes, you know, your parents and partners expect two different things out of you. You know, one of them wants you to have one career, one of you wants to do the other career, you know. And then you both, and then you have to do all these things to make sure that both of them know that you love them so much. Because if you don't tell them how much you love them, they get mad at you. Don't they? You know? And if you don't go visit your parents every so often, then they'll hurt and they think you don't love them and then you feel guilty and then you feel obliged to go see them and the same thing with your, your spouse you know 
dear, tell me you love me. I've told you every day five times, tell me again, you know, and then, and then you know. And then, of course, we play that out, too, don't we? You know, our own insecurity. Please tell me that you love me, you know. And we, you know how we do, how we drop all these things to get our, our partner to tell us how much they love us? You know that? Yeah? How we drop all these things, you know. Meaning, you're supposed to say X, Y, Z right now. And you're supposed to read my mind and know that I need you to reaffirm me at this moment. And then, of course... If they're smart, they pick it up. But if they're distracted, or if they're a little bit slow, then they say, why are you whining? <laughs> you know? And then we feel, ah! You know, we just feel crunched because, oh, they're blaming me right at the time when I need them to tell me how much they love me so I can feel secure. Now they're blaming me and telling me I'm whining. Of course, it's the truth, but I don't want to realize that. <laughs> yeah. And then we go on all these emotional trips because they don't really love us enough. And then we think about the early part of the relationship, which is so wonderful. Now all this time has gone by and it's just the same old, same old, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's what we call living happily ever after. And so, you know, they have expectations of us. Then you have kids. Oy. You know, kids. So, so you have kids. Then what do you have? You know, you can't sleep at night, quite literally. Yeah, because my friends, you know, just had a baby, and they, they said that he seems to know exactly when they've just fallen asleep. Because that's when he cries, she said. No? And if you don't, try talking to your parents sometimes and ask them to tell you what it was like when you were like one or two years old. Yeah. Across the board, they are sleep deprived. No? Because you have a baby that, you know, cries in the middle of the night. You know? And you can't say, please, can you wait a little bit? I'm sleeping. You know, it's like you have to get up and take care of that baby. And doesn't matter you haven't slept enough, doesn't matter you're tired, doesn't matter you're sick. You know, you could be sick with the flu, it doesn't matter. Your baby's crying, you get up and take care of that baby. Yeah. And then you've got to raise the kids when they're toddlers and they're, you know, there's stuffing electrical cords down their throat and putting hangers in their mouth and standing at the edge of the stairs ready to, you know, play airplane to get to the bottom of the stairs and, you know, all those things. Again, talk, you know, have you ever asked your parents about what you did when you were little and what they had to, to save us from? You know, and so then you spend your whole life, you know, watching after this kid who's, you know, sticking their fingers in electric sockets and, and doing everything, running out in front of the cars and lighting matches and, you know, who knows what. Yeah. And you're taking care of this kid and then you have to, you know, then you have to go to work, right? Because you have to get the money to feed the kid. You know, and also to feed your spouse and to feed yourself. So then you have to go to work. 
Yeah. And then, of course, your boss has other expectations. So not only do you have ABC from your parents, no, for XYZ from your parents and ABC from your spouse, you know, then you also have DEF from your boss who has expectations of you, you know, and then as your kids get older, they have a ton of expectations, you know, because they want you to be the really cool parents, right? You know, and really understanding and flexible. And they want you to be great parents, which means you let them do whatever they want to do. Okay? Of course, if you do that, yeah, then your kids are going to love you because you were so wonderful to them. But if you put restrictions on what they do, then they complain about you and hate you and say, you know, I'm so screwed up because you did this and didn't let me do that and, and blah, blah, blah. So you spend all this time and energy raising this kid. You know, who, who then, you know, who knows what they say about you when, they're, when you're not around. Yeah. I mean, because you know what happened. What happened when we became teenagers? Yeah? Did we appreciate our parents when we were teenagers? Yeah? Did we say, please, Mom, thank you, Dad? No, I don't know about you, but I said, here's my laundry and give me the car keys. And put some money with the car keys, please, you know. And don't tell me what time to be home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just as a teenager, you know, it's like all about me and I want to do what I want to do. And, you know, Mom and Dad, you worked your whole life to support me. So give me a car, give me the clothes I want, give me this, give me that. Yeah, do this for me, do that for me. She's been, you know... All these years, you know, not sleeping because you're feeding the kids. And, you know, taking the electrical cords that they swallowed out of their mouth and rushing them back and forth to the ER room. You know, we have this great story in my family about my brother. I can't remember what he did, but he it was something like with your foot, you know, and he did something and... We, was, we were playing and he did something to his foot and he couldn't get up and he was crying and it was so hurt. So they rush into the ER room and they take the x-rays and the doctor says, okay, and then my brother jumps off the, the thing and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> my parents were furious. <laughs> and then there was the chat my friend, Oh, <laughs> that was a great story about my brother. Some of you have heard it. We had a swimming pool in our backyard at one point, and my brother was riding his tricycle. So he was a little kid, you know. So he was riding his tricycle. I guess he was very attached to his tricycle. He rode it right off the side into the deep end of the pool. The tricycle sank to the bottom of the pool, and my brother is holding on to it for dear life, you know. Yeah, this is what clinging to true existence is like. You know, it's like you hold on to what's killing you. And, I mean, thank goodness that the guy who was cleaning the pool was in the backyard. And he just jumped in. He was wearing his clothes. He just jumped in and had to pry my brother off the tricycle. You know? I mean, these are the, the great wonders you go through as, a, as an adult raising a kid. Yeah. And then, of, of course, you know, becoming teenagers and, you know, your kids out doing who knows what and you're home alone and what time are they going to be home and I'm sure they've been, you know, kidnapped and raped and murdered and, 
you know, in a car accident, and you're worried about them, and this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and then the kids only repay your kindness by saying, relax, Mom, you know, chill out, Dad, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, they, you know, you have the, the whole life planned out for how your kids are supposed to, supposed to grow up to be because, you know, everything that you weren't able to do, then the kids are going to do. Yeah? So the career you weren't able to have, then your kids are going to have it. And all the talents you didn't have and weren't able to develop, then you, you want your kids to have that. If you want them to have all the opportunities. So, I mean, yeah, also when they're a kid, you're driving them around. You have to take them to piano lessons. And you have to take them to tennis lessons. And you have to take them here. There, because they're going to do and have and be everything you want. Whether they want to or not, it doesn't matter. You know? We have their life planned out, and it's an extension of us, and they've got to be what we want them to be. And, of course, what happens? Kids are not what we... They don't turn out the way we want. You know? And they just go do their own thing, and, you know, and who knows what, and send us the bill. And, uh, and then they go, and, you know, they're, they're looking to get married, and you look at who they're attracted to, and you go, oh, no hope they don't marry that one you know and of course that's the one they marry and then you know you just <laughs> then you watch your kid go through all the traumas of you know falling in love and getting divorced and the whole nine yards and, you know and then you're old and your kid wants power of attorney and they want your money and they want you to make your will and you know so that they can make sure they get it and and you know, and you just go through all of this. And of course, you spent hours and hours working, developing your career, because, you know, your kids want you and your spouse also wants you to be somebody. And your parents want you to be somebody. So, you, you know, you work really hard your whole career because you want to make a name for yourself. You want to make enough money, you know, because your parents, family, spouse, everybody wants you to have money. I mean, and especially your kids. It's not just your parents who want you to have money. Your kids want you to have money because they need Nike shoes. They need to go to tennis lessons. They need to go to summer camp. They want to get tattooed. They want to get, you know, they, they want to dye their hair pink. They want, you know, you're supposed to pay the bill for all of this. You know, they want their car when they turn 16. They they want to, you know, they want to learn the banjo. They want to, you know, everything. And you've got to pay for it all. So you have to work. And it's true, isn't it? And so you have to work. And you work so hard, you know, because your kid just can't have some kind of dodo parent. You know, because from the time they go to preschool, you know, everybody in preschool is taking, they don't take their, their lunch to, in, in paper bags like we did. You know, they all have their special little, you know, lunch pails that, you know, and you can tell the wealth of the family by the kind of little lunch thing that the kids take to preschool. And your kids learn this very early, you know, which kids are more favored because their parents have more money because they, you know, and they know this because they have a different color little, you know, thing that you put that you put your lunch in, you know, or they would, they're, they're the ones that have, you know, different kind of shoes or, 
you know, all these things, you know, because kids from the time they're young are taught to be consumers. Mom and dad have to foot the bill. Yeah, and to your kids coming home, and you know, you, you went into parenthood with all your ideals, you know. I'm going to arrange, uh, raise these great kids without television, and they're going to be ecologically sensitive, and, you know, really care about the whole planet. And your kid comes home, Mom, I want Nike shoes. Everybody else has them. And you say, dear, they were made by child children, and in Latin America and you're so lucky that you don't have to work and go to a factory and so we're not going to buy those shoes because other children just like you are suffering to make them and your kid goes I don't care no Joey has those shoes I want them too because in my kindergarten class everybody has them and nobody's going to like me if I don't have those shoes you know and then they sit down and they cry and of course then you feel guilty so you know you go out and get your kids the shoes they want because your shoes your kids got to fit in because if they don't fit in they're going to have psychological problems you know just like we did and they're going to feel unloved and unwanted so you have to go to work to get the money to buy the things so your kid doesn't have psychological problems but then of course your kid never sees you because you're working all the time anyway so they don't feel loved so then they have psychological problems anyway <laughs> you know and then they, 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 they go see see Anne and they say my mom and dad don't love me you know because they're working all the time I never see them and, you know and then mom and dad are fitting, footing the bill for that, too. You know? So, so you just, you know, you become your children's employee. You know, basically. And if you look at the way families run now, parents ask their children for permission to do things. Just listen. Whenever you're in a public place, listen to how parents and children talk to each other. You know? Susie, we're going to go shopping now, Okay. You know, mom's asking Susie's permission. You know, she goes, no, I don't want to go shopping. I want to stay at the pet store. So they stay at the pet store a little bit longer. You know, your kid gives you an order, then you do what your kid says. Just watch. Just look, you know. And then, of course, all the other parents are doing that. And so what are you going to do? You're going to be different. So all your ideals about how your kid's not going to watch TV and, you know, be exposed to all this rubbish, you know, it's out the window by preschool. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is the householder life. The householder life. You know, and then your kids grow up. They get married. They have kids. Okay. And then they want, you know, your kids want to travel, so then they give you the kids to take care of. Yeah. Either that or your kids are whacked out on drugs and they can't take care of the kids, so there you are taking care of your grandkids, you know, raising them again. Yeah, so kids are whacked out. You know, and then you do go through the whole scenario again with your grandkids. You know. I want this, I want that. You know? And and this time it's even worse because as a parent you could say no, that was kind of your responsibility to teach teach your kids some manners. But as a grandparent, you're supposed to spoil your kids. You know? 
And so then your grandkids are wanting this and that. Then, you know, okay, you have to keep working to support your grandkids. Otherwise, they're not going to like you either. And this is how how you win your kids' love. You know? You have to do what they want, be what they want. And if you want to keep on practicing Buddhism, your kids are going to look at you. Mom, Dad, you're so weird. How can I bring my friends home when you have that weird thing in your living room with the Buddha? You know? Mom, Dad, why are you going out again? Yeah, can't you stay home at night for once? Well, I had one friend, yeah, and uh, this is when I was living in Singapore. She was a Westerner. And, uh, and she had kids in middle school and high school. Of course, when they're home, she hardly ever sees them because she's either the chauffeur driving them here or driving them there, or when they're home, they're in their room on the computer watching television. When she started uh, getting interested in Buddhism, then she started going to Buddhist classes. Then her kids started complaining. You aren't home. Of course, when she was home, her kids never talked to her. Yeah. So then she's, she's stuck in this thing. Well, you know, why can't I go to Dharma class? Well, my kids aren't giving me permission. <laughs> you know? They're going to feel unloved. And then just this very real thing of once she's there, then they just totally ignore her. So, so this, is, this is the household of life. And then, you know, you're making the money and you're trying to avoid paying taxes on it and everything that that involves and, and safeguarding it and the stock market's going up and down and up and down and you're worrying as it's going up and down. Okay. And you know where all of this came from? Yeah, it all comes because of attachment, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's two specific kinds of attachments that this whole thing relies on. Okay? One is attachment to emotional intimacy in a romantic relationship, and the other is attachment to sex. You know? And for sexual pleasure, and then some intimacy, everybody has their, their own degree of, you know, how much it's lust and how much it's emotion, you know? And you hope your partner has the same <laughs> percentage of each as you do, which they usually don't. Um, you know, so it's another thing for you to quarrel about. Um, but th- that's what the whole thing comes from. Yeah? Yeah? Doesn't it? Yeah? Without sexual attraction? Yeah? Without lust? Without... You know, some kind of need to, for somebody to be there to think we're special to support us. Then who would bother with this whole thing? Yeah. But we, we, you know, get ourselves involved in it, basically. You know, want some sex. <laughs> true or not true? It's true, isn't it? We all know it's true. Yeah, and then you play all these games to get the sex that you want. You you walk a certain way, you talk a certain way, and you pretend to be interested in things that you don't care beans about. Yeah, because you want the other person to like you. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't care about the history of the Civil War in Mexico, but you know who you're dating thinks it's very interesting. 
So, you know, you pretend you're interested. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> if you're yawning. Yeah. And then just all the tricks and the games and, you know, and their insecurities and your insecurities, you know, because they're insecure and they want you to tell them you love them, they want you to buy flowers for them, they want you to, you know, give them golf balls and they want you to... <laughs> <laughs> They love each other. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to figure out what that is and do what they want. And then, of course, you have your own things, you know, that you expect them to telepathically realize that, you know, that you can't stand roses and you, you know, you really wish they would get you a box of she's candy, you know, low fat, please. <laughs> and you know and that's the way you show me you love me dear you know with the seeds candy or you know please take out the garbage yeah and and then you know you go through all these trips you know just for some sex <laughs> yeah isn't it you know because you what you know how you dress and how you talk and what you do with your eyes and, you know, how you do this thing, you make sure you catch his eyes on the other side of the room, but not too long because then he'll know that you like you, that, it, that you like him, and, you know, you've got to do it long enough so that he likes you, but not too long so that he knows that you're interested, you know. And then you've got to wear the kind of clothes that you think the other person is going to like you, you know, and you have to have the same socioeconomic class and, you know, be the, have the same range with this and that because they don't want to marry some kind of idiot you know they want to whatever thing they're into they want somebody who's cool according to that because they have to take you to their friends and they're attached to what their friends say about them and now that you're part of them they're going to be attached to who you you know what their friends say about you and they're going to try and mold you into who you need to be so that their friends will like them yeah and of course you've got to be something else for their parents yeah, because they want their parents to like you too. And so then they have to then they tell you how you're supposed to be for your parents when you're trying to, you know, figure out how to be one way for the, the your partner and another way for their parents and another way for their friends and in the meantime you don't you have no clue who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whenever you go somewhere, it's very interesting. Watch what happens when people go to parties. You know, there's a whole group of new people. Who do you who are you with the whole time? Who do you sit next to the whole time? You're with your spouse, your partner. Yeah? And I just find it interesting. It's like that it's like, you know, people don't have their own identity. They're like this. You know? And then of course one partner is dominant, so the other one kind of, you know, goes along with that one and you that one socializes and you say a little bit and you know. <laughs> And the whole thing, and your whole identity is, you know, totally wrapped up with that person. And then, of course, if that person gets sick, what happens? They get in a car accident? You know, you signed up for sex for life, and then this person gets in a car accident. You know, and they can't have sex for a while, or maybe not at all, ever, you know. And you're going, hmm, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is the household of life and, and what you go through. And, 
Okay? So it's just it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah? And you know, just you just start with a little bit of attachment for something and then it it just amplifies. Yeah? And then you have to set up the whole life according to that to feed that whole thing. And then in all of that you're gonna practice the Dharma. Hmm? And of course, you know, I'm not I'm ta- not talking just about attachment, but then, you know, if somebody doesn't like your kid, oh, then you get so upset. You know, somebody throws stones at your kids, you get upset. Somebody calls your kids names, you get upset. Your kid gets a C on a spelling test, you freak out. They're not going to get into a good college. Yeah. So then all this anger comes up, and then somebody else's kids are better than your kids. And the whole, the whole thing, you know, and it all, it all comes because of attachment. Okay. All comes. I mean, that's, that's the whole root thing. How we get ourselves in that situation? It's all because of attachment. Okay. And then, then your whole life is is spent just kind of. Making, trying to keep all the pieces together, mm-hmm. trying to keep the whole thing from not falling apart and disintegrating. Yeah, you're constantly plugging the holes in the dike. Yeah, and uh, and then the whole life goes by, and then you know you're on your deathbed, and you look on the walls, and there's all your, you know, your plaques and your awards and. And your kids are going to throw them out. And they can't, you know, they don't come with you. So, so what's going to happen? Okay, so I think it's, really, it's something that, that's very helpful to think about and, and, ask, and ask ourselves, and, you know, clarifying you know, what, what really do we want our life to be about and what's important. And, you know, if I live my life this way, what's going to happen? If I live my life that way, that's going to happen. And if you, you know, and then play the whole thing out. You know, you do the whole householder thing, and then, you know, maybe you're lucky, you live to be 80, 90, and then you're on your deathbed, okay? And, you know, they've already taken the plaques and trophies that you spent your whole life trying to get, and they've taken those and thrown them out already. Um, And you're looking back over your life and saying, what do I have of value? Yeah, I knew the Dharma when I was young. I said a few prayers all those years. And now I'm dying and what's going to come with me? Hmm? And so then, you know, incredible amount of fear comes at the time of death. Because there's so much regret about how the life was lived. So much regret about not having practiced so much regret about the negative actions that we did you know just kind of and then and all of that plus we're separating from our body plus the whole ego structure that that we got by means of our family and our career and that whole thing yeah that whole little nice little comfortable this is who I am you know and the main components are our family and our career all of that is disintegrating. Going bye-bye. Yeah, and we don't even know, you know, who am I anymore? And I'm leaving everything that's familiar and everything that I treasured and everything 
that I spent my, all my life and time and energy working on and I'm separating from all of it. And I don't know, even know what's happening now. And there's tremendous fear. So, you know, so good to think about these things now so that we can make some wise plans and try and do something meaningful with our life. Mm-hmm. Somehow all of that came out of my mouth. That was not what I was going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs>